a podcast. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer ya. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> My friends out at Mutiny Radio. Chester Cashcock here, giving you my love and regards as well as Moofy's over there. And you know, anytime I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Bamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10. They have a fun time at Pamtastics Deep in the Mission, where you can laugh off your tushy every Friday for a mere $10. And $10, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with, so to wipe it off for... <laughs> it's in duty this. And if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, don't worry, don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show in the comfort of anywhere, like your Aspen summer cottage on the mountain ridge with the kayaks. <laughs> Just go to podcast.pcrcollective.org or mutinyradio.fm podcasts and look for Comedy Clubhouse with a K. You can download it for free. But we'd love to see you every Friday, 8 to 10, down here at Mutiny Radio. Laugh off your tushy and save your life. Because you know what's better than laughter? Well, it's a cash cock, baby.
Hey, me and Nearest Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Subliminal SF visual and auditory mind control brings you the best, coolest t-shirt and hoodie designs and mind-bending local bands and shows at venues all over San Francisco and the Bay Area. Subliminal SF is here to destroy your sense of normalcy and plant ideas in your skull to make you cooler and a more awesome person. Check out all the badass products at subliminalsf.myshopify.com. That's subliminalsf.myshopify.com. And experience Subliminal SF. If you're looking for some delicious late-night food, I suggest you mosey on down to Bender's Bar. Inside, you can find counter-offer, and my offering you amazing late-night food and snacks. Try the chicken biscuit. It's like your stomach's in a tasty tornado. They have exceptionally great daily ground sustainable burgers with sides of tater tots, grilled asparagus, and delicious zucchini. And creamy-licious mac and cheese. You like tacos? They get them. And from the specials, very deep fried fish sandwich to a stoner burger with a donut bun. What are those crazy potheads going to come up with next? Go to the counter offer inside of Blender's Bar at 800 South Van Ness Avenue, San Francisco. It's located between 19th Street and 20th Street in the Mission District. Open seven nights a week from 5 to 10 p.m. or later. Counter offer, son!
Welcome to Spiritual Psychology with Renee McKenna. I'm a therapist and healer here in San Francisco. And if you want real change on a soul level, you've come to the right place. start <laughs> well, so do you introduce yourself in the beginning yeah of the show? so welcome to scotch talks podcast this is your host scotch um with us today is a good friend of mine renee mckenna hi scotch hey welcome happy to be here yeah happy to have you <laughs> um i'm not sure what to talk about where to start um well we, we were just talking about intentions right yes so, and I have a lot of areas of my life, and I think that the easiest way to tie them all together is through this intention-setting work that I did years ago through this book called The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. It's by Stephen Covey, and um, it's one of the most powerful spiritual books that I know written in the guise of a business literature. Mm-hmm. It's really um, amazing. And one of the exercises in that book is to write a personal mission statement. And I've had the opportunity to start quite a few businesses, many of which have failed. And, um, <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and it's nice to start a mission, to have a mission statement in when you have an organization, because mm-hmm. then you can kind of determine the actions that you're going to take and you can run them against the mission statement because the mission statement doesn't change. It's kind of like the core, like why the intention, right? Mm-hmm. And so Kobe suggests that you write a personal mission statement and which is like an intention. And so my mission statement that came out of that work was to use all of my gifts and talents for the benefit of the most people and myself. Actually, originally, it wasn't in myself. In the last few years, I've added myself into that, um, which feels really important. Can you just say that one more time? Using all of my gifts and talents for the benefit of the most people and myself. Okay. And do you go into every single situation with that in mind? Do you bring that up? I wish that I was conscious enough to think (laughs) about it all the time. Although on a regular basis, I do think about it. And it has become kind of a working part of who I am as a person now. Mm -hmm. And well, I mean, it, it fits with my personality because I'm a very extroverted group crowd kind of person I'm Mm -hmm. a service oriented person I love to do stuff for other people Um, I've you know the pathological side of that is that I'm a codependent and I can care more about caring for other people than I do for myself Mm -hmm. but you know the the healthy I think um, the higher resonance of that is that I can do a lot of good in the world and so, and adding myself into the equation actually cancels out the codependent piece, the pathological piece, because if I'm involved, if it's just all about you, it's a way to escape myself. Mm. But if I include myself in the equation, then the equation tends to be more balanced. Yeah. Is my experience. Nice. So, I mean, I, you know me, I can just talk. So <laughs> <laughs> how, um, how that play, how that has played out for me is, you know, I have had, I had, I like to call it the burden of potential and <laughs> right. And you know, I had a lot of different things that I was good at 
as a kid in school coming up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I was good at art. I um, was good at science. I got the highest chemistry mark and as a senior in high school in my, in my town, which was a pretty big town. Um, I'm really good with people. I was in student government. I was president of my senior class. And, and so there was a lot of variant ways I could go. Did I want to become someone in the medical community or in, in environmental science? Did I want to become a politician? Did I want to be an artist? I, I loved literature. I, I actually became an English major in college. So the hard thing for me, you know, my parents told me, you can be anything you want. But the hard thing was like, I had so many fucking things that I possibly could have done. I couldn't make up my mind. Yeah. Right. So after high school, I took a gap year and went and worked in a factory because I didn't know what to do. What? Yeah. I didn't know this. Yeah. So, um, which was really, it was a really instructive experience. It was a really instructive experience on a lot of levels because, so the company that I worked for was particular, it was a Jewish owned company. Um, a conservative Jewish-owned company, and the two men who had started the company had tattoos from the Holocaust on their arms. They escaped the camps oh my um, God. at the age of 20 and came to America and started a business. Wow. And most of the people who worked there were Jewish immigrants. It was kind of like the UN. It was very interesting. Yeah, all the people that worked in the office... Uh, I mean, eventually they all spoke English. They all spoke Yiddish, which was how they connected with each other at conservative at the conservative temple and um so there was people from poland and there was people from germany and there was people from so they were from all over the world and um it was interesting because the 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 production all the people in the production department were from puerto rico and all the people down in the shipping department were all from the philippines and um yeah it was interesting and i was the goyim that worked at front i was the girl the white girl the non-jewish girl the goyim um, that worked <laughs> girl he would call me girl call that man <laughs> so um, yeah it was a really it was a really really interesting experience to work for you know they all kept kosher and we kept the Jewish holidays and um, wow. yeah it was a super dysfunctional family business but uh, <laughs> but I learned a lot about Judaism and a lot about and a lot about that I didn't want to work in a factory for four dollars an hour for the rest of my life $4 and it motivated me to go yeah when I got a raise I went to four twenty five. Whoa. Wow. Of course this was a long time ago. <laughs> I'm 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 gonna be fifty five in a couple minutes. So this was in nineteen eighty three. Way before you were born. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway um we get off on that. I don't know how we get off on that. But um <laughs> So we were talking, I know this is an art podcast mm-hmm. at its essence, right? At its essence, yes. At its essence, it's about art. Oh, I was talking about all the different things I did in school. So funny, we were just talking to somebody about this the other day. Part of the reason I didn't go to art school was because there were people that were better artists than me. Really. I mean, I had, I was very lucky. I had this fabulous high school that I went to in Weymouth, Mass, and it was super progressive. And I get to take art. I was an art major Mm. and an English major. I got to take art um, every day from eighth grade to 12th grade with a fabulous art teacher. And then, uh, and I took two literature classes at least every day. It was, it was a brilliant arts education. And, but, um, you know, my fragile ego at the time um, you know, there were kids that were, I quote, quote unquote, like better artists than me. And so, I mean, I had a lot of things I could tell you about why I didn't want to go to art school. Oh, well, I don't want to make it a hobby and I you don't want to make it into a job. I might not like, it was crap. Really. I was afraid that there was people better than me. 
which was really has I think it's a problem for a lot of people you know yeah. we we feel like we aren't good enough as we are yeah. and so and and really of essence like that's what my intention I think points to for me and is that it's not about comparing myself to other people or the gifts and talents that I have we all have gifts and talents everyone has gifts and talents and finding what those are and being willing to bring the fullest expression of them into the world I think is our work as a human and, you know, I mean, my work as a therapist um, and a psychologist and a spiritual teacher and a shaman and a healer and all the other things that I do is really to help remove the blocks that people have to their authentic self mm. and, and all those gifts and talents that we have. Because really, it's only in bringing those forward that we find the fulfillment and the happiness and the peace and the joy that we all seek. And but... You know, I like Will Smith says, God put everything good on the other side of fear. Um, <laughs> and the fear is usually about fears of our own inadequacy mm. in comparison to our idea of who we think other people are. Generally, I think yep. most people suffer from that. Um, I know I still do. You know, I'm, I'm just finishing up my first book, should hopefully be out in a month. It's going to be called Allies and Demons. In a month? It's my what? goal. It'll be out in a month on Amazon. Wow. Allies and Demons. You can find it at ReneeMcKenna.com. And, and um, you know, I was, I've been reading some other, you know, psychology, spiritual literature, because the work I do is called spiritual psychology, and it's a blend of hypnotherapy and Buddhism and shamanism, and the best, I think, of Western psychology. It's a really potent elixir for healing. And transformation for me and for the, hopefully for those I work for <laughs> um, but you know I've, I was I was actually reading some stuff this morning and, and I still find myself like oh like this writing is so good it's so clear and to the point and deep and and I feel that my own work you know is inadequate in comparison to that and I'm working very closely with an editor she holds my hand every day as we write because I just can't <laughs> do it by myself I finally realized which is fine I can ask for help and uh, you know and so we just had this talk this morning that you know I have a special thing that comes through me Mm -hmm. That comes through Renee Lavallee McKenna, the age I am, the experience I've had, the the voice, you know, my Boston accent, my <laughs> fuck you attitude, whatever, <laughs> you know, um, and that that's what's supposed to come through me, mm -hmm. and and I have to trust that that's my gift to the world, and that that's good enough. It it isn't about comparing that I'm not as good as the pathwork of self transformation <laughs> or Stephen Covey or Scott Peck or you know whoever the other people that I admire their writing is it, it's gotta I have to have the courage to be myself in fact my intention recently is um, for myself it's more of a goal actually is I want to become fearless fearless I want to become fearless I how? really do I don't know how you become fearless but I want to do it I feel like I fear I feel like fear is always there but it's just cutting off that part of you that wants to make excuses right and then like another part just makes you do it or walks you or runs you through the fear well fear really I think is a boogeyman for the most part I mean yeah. <clears throat> especially you know when I turned 50 a couple, five years ago I took a retreat 
in New Mexico, I went to the desert. I love the desert. And I, I find the desert kind of like, there's, a, there's an openness in the space in being able to see for 40 miles and the sparseness of the landscape that just kind of clears away the details that get in the way of life. And, uh, yep. and what I felt really clearly, two things. I mean, that, that's when it, it became, the first thing was it became very clear to me that I'm here to be myself. Mm. I'm not here to be what you want me to be or what my mother wanted me to be or what society wants me to be. Like, my job is to be me. There's only one of me, and I'm going to die. And that was the second thing that happened was that at 50, I could really see the horizon line. Like, you know, at best I get another 50, and the last 10 or 15 of those are probably going to be crap, right? So, <laughs> so I got maybe 35, and I have not done the things that I want to do in this life. Mm-hmm. I've done a lot of great things, but, like, I haven't done the thing that I feel like really pushed myself to do the thing, which is what this book is the start of that, to really be willing to push myself to the edge, to be willing to face my fears and outgrow them. And what's the fear? Fear of failure? Fear of success, fear of dying, fear of getting my feelings hurt, like whatever. I've already failed. I've already succeeded. I've already had my feelings hurt. I haven't died yet. <laughs> Hopefully I only do that once. But, you know, I've already lived through all that stuff. What am I afraid of? You know, what am I afraid of? I think now what's happened for me is that my biggest fear is that I'll get to the end of my life and give myself a thumbs down. That I'll, mm. I'll be on my deathbed and have not done the thing mm-hmm. and be disappointed with myself. And that really is my biggest fear. That is a bigger fear than whether people like me or not or whether I get my feelings hurt or a bad rating on Amazon or whatever, whatever happens. Um, but, there's a, but there continues to be a lot of growth to be able to do that. Yeah. So, I mean, was that just when you were in Mexico? Like you had that realization or have you because since i've known you for this past year like you've always just been renee like totally and completely yourself like were you never not like that uh i think in the context that we know each other no i think in the context that we know each other which is personal growth work and and a lot of spiritual work and Uh um and it's places of great vulnerability no i think i've always been I think that's been my place, my core place of self-discovery. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I feel so grateful to have, for most of my life, had communities of people who are doing the same thing, who are trying to grow and be the best version of themselves they can be, and really deeply looking at their flaws and their fears and their frailties and, and, and trying to work through them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that's been modeled to me, and now I know I'm a model for that, just as part of a larger community. So I, I feel super grateful for that. But in other contexts of my life, so you know, I use the book as an example. So I hired somebody. Um, I spent. Well, I'll just say how it happened. You know, I went on. Uh, I went on a, a trip traveling. I was just thinking about it on the way here. Traveling is a, is a clear the deck place. Yeah. I mean, never mind the desert. Um, I'm actually planning a trip in a couple of months for the same reason. When I get out of my regular routine and I get into a new place, I'm there with fresh eyes. I'm totally in the moment. I know I might never come back here. It's Tuesday at one o'clock. Like, whoa, what happens in Belgium at Tuesday at one? Like I'm like on it. Right. (laughs) And, and when I come back to my regular life, like I feel like it brings up 
in some ways my my best version of myself yeah. super present super excited engaged with what's happening people places things uh-huh. and then I get back into my routine life and all the things that don't support that become painfully obvious uh-huh like it feels if it feels like I have to like squish myself back down into the box of my life I have often had radical cha- made radical changes to my life after taking a big trip I've left relationships I've quit jobs I've moved um, realizing that having had that experience for a week or two or three of my of my kind of optimal way of living I want to live that now mm-hmm and we get choices. We can. If you know, if I'm unhappy, I, I need to make some changes. There's nobody else to blame for that. So, um, so what happened when we got back from this trip? We went to Europe. I took my kids. I have two kids, and um, and I took my kids. We went to five countries in in 17 days. It was an awesome trip. And um, and so I get back, and I remember it was a day like today. We're in San Francisco. It's a beautiful, clear day, and we live near the ocean. And I was out on my deck, and I was looking at the ocean and my beautiful house. And I have, I have another house in the East Bay. I have two houses, two kids, two dogs, two trucks. I get two of fucking everything, and I'm, <laughs> and I'm miserable. Like I, mm. I felt this like almost suicidal feeling. Like I don't like my life, and. And I had, you know, the work I do is very visual, uses the active imagination a lot as a way, as a bridge between uh, the outer world and the inner world, between the world of spirit and the non-physical realities of our own truth, of our emotions, of of greater consciousness, um, and bringing those into our own little brain using, for me, it's very visual. Different people have different ways. So I often have images happen to me and um, work a lot with archetypes and guides and teachers and angels and all kinds of different things. And um, and so as I was sitting there and I was on the phone with somebody like, why do I want to die? Um, <laughs> something's wrong here. What do I need to change? And this image of myself at the end of my life, this image of myself as an old person mm. came. Like, very clear. I can still feel it. She's over here. She's on the right. She's happy with me right now. But she, and she was like, girl, you can either do the thing and get a thumbs up, or you cannot do the thing and get a thumbs down. And, like, you know, at the end of the day, at the end, when I'm on my deathbed, I don't get a second chance to be Renee McKenna doing this. And just to be clear, what is the thing? So the thing at that point was, so they felt like um, two choices one was my profession and one was my personal life. And there was um, definitely limitations happening in both. I've been doing the therapy work that I do for a long time. But, you know, I have a little home office. I certainly am not using all my gifts and talents. And the other was my personal life and my home and my marriage. And so I was like, do I write my book or do I leave my husband? (laughs) And so I was like, I'm gonna write the book first. (laughs) <laughs> Subsequently, I actually have left my husband, but <laughs> there's an order of operations apparently. And so, so writing the book came first. So I, um, you know, I, it's an interactive universe. I believe in, in higher good. And I believe that there are, uh, there's a whole realm of grace that's there to support our highest good. And so I started to talk about it. I started to do some research. I have a friend who works in publishing. And I'll just say within two weeks, I had a writing support group and I had a ghostwriter. And mm. I had a talk with him. Because at that point, I, I knew I couldn't do it by myself. I had kind of been trying. I had like 25 starts of writing this book. I just couldn't do it by myself. 
and he said to me um okay so we can probably do six months six or six to eight months and um and this is how much i charge and i had exactly that amount of money in my bank account it was all my savings uh -huh. it was every penny of my savings but i had exactly the amount and so i was like okay <laughs> i'm not a huge signs and symbols person but Maybe I am. You know, I was like, all right. So I wrote the big fat check and we spent eight months writing the book and I got a 269 page transcript at the end that was technically publishable and I hated it. I couldn't even read it. I couldn't even look at it. I read the first chapter and I was like, oh my God, I would never read this book. Did you just think that that was maybe just you? No. Or did you run it by other people? No, I didn't show anyone. <laughs> I said, if I don't love this book, I can't put it out. Mm. And, and so I'm bringing this back to what the, what the question was. So in the process of writing that book, which is, it's basically the, it was basically like the, the core text of, it's the book I have now, only the book, The Allies and Demons is, is um, uh, much more condensed. And mm -hmm. I think, um, I think it's going to be shorter and more put it to the point. But one of the things when you're writing, and I think it happens all the time unconsciously when we're out, is the idea of how am I presenting myself to mm. people, right? How am I presenting myself? And in my work, we talk a lot about having a mask, a social mask, a sexual mask, a friendship mask, a family mask, like that we put on these different masks to be who we think other people want us to be. Mm. Think who we, or even our own idealized self-image of who we think we are, who we think we want to be, that may not be actually that connected with who, what's true, depending on how unconscious and how, that's a bummer. The further you are away from your authentic self, the more of a bummer it is, really. But anyway... The way the book was written, uh, we had, you know, I was a little bit up in the air about it, but the way the book was written was from this place of authority. Like, Renee Bacchetta, therapist for 30 years, speaks to you from, you know, and I hate that, <laughs> um, that idea, you know, there's a hierarchy, it's like, I'm well and you're sick, or yeah. I'm the doctor and you're the patient, and, and that's crap. Like, I'm a human, I'm more fucked up than most people I know. Like, I'm still doing <laughs> this work, I got a lot of bags, I'm still unpacking, um, I have a tremendous amount of experience and tremendous transformation and healing has happened for me, so I, I know that I am an example but um but you know there was this question do i swear do, how do i dress like do i put on the white coat like they do on on the commercial for excedrin pn pretend <laughs> like i'm a doctor and tell you that this is my authoritative opinion people are very influenced by that stuff yeah, right um or do i wear my like heavy metal t-shirt and like <laughs> say the f word like i was raised in boston and and um you know i was thinking oh do i get this little mole taken off my face do i try to lose my accent like do i try to become a more acceptable version of myself Mm. That was the question. And, and the way that book was written, all 269 pages of it were from a mask. Mm. And so, you know, I've spent the last year rewriting it in my own authentic voice. And so, so I will tell you that, that the writing of that book in that way did come from some experience. Um, you know, stepping, I had an opportunity in January of 2017 to step out in a very public way. 
um, you know, I was lead of Women's March San Francisco, uh-huh. and there was a lot of things that went down in that process. Um, it was one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had, and I'm so grateful to have been able to be a part of facilitating that amazing event that ended up being, of course, a worldwide event for like Jeez. 7 million people. Yeah. But, um, but there was also, when you put yourself, when, as a privileged white woman, putting myself out as the face of an event that is, stands for social justice, um, there was some really venomous attacks on me just as a figurehead uh-huh. um, that were quite terrifying and, and upsetting um, from different communities um, and demographics in the Bay Area who, who have been disenfranchised and victimized and brutalized for centuries, and I was the person that they could shoot at. And so, mm-hmm. so there was this, out of that experience, uh, was the idea, well, like, how do I, if I'm going to really step out in a public way, how do I do that in a safe way? How do I do that? How do I do that? Like, do I be an authority? Do I, like, what's the... So it felt almost like a political thing. And mm. I mean, since, so it's been a lot of contemplation about that, about my, my package, my brand, like, who am I going to be? And... Um, you know, happy to report that uh, the brand is just going to be me <laughs> <laughs> now. And 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 how I protect myself is to come from a place of truth and compassion. How does a uh, one go about finding their authentic self? So that's a big question. It's a big question. I I, I have a lot of answers for that question. I mean, I think. I think really it, the authentic self is always here, right here where we are. And the the easiest direct, fastest direct route is really just to sit quietly with yourself mm. and to observe what's happening. Um, I like, you know, you were asking me a little bit early about writing stuff down. Like I I I like to think about the chakra energy systems. If people aren't familiar with that, so in, in Chinese medicine and a lot of Eastern medicine, there's like different ideas of different chakras. So there's one at the top of our head, one between our eyebrows, one at our throat, our heart, one at our solar plexus, one just below our belly button, and one at the base of our spine. And each of them has a slightly different um, personality or has has a different attribute holds different intentions in the world and um, not just in our body but our body the, those parts of our body are all metaphors for different ways of being in the world and so most of us spend most of our time in our head mm-hmm. right most of our time is spent in our head and so and it's a valid place right there's a val- <laughs> there is a lot and that's pretty much the place between your eyebrows right like that's there is a place um, but to open up spiritually like how do I feel spiritually what does that even mean to me I think it's about asking questions Mm. and then listening for the answer that comes from within us Um, you know my my throat is my voice Um, what do I have to say to myself to other people am I full of self-hatred and criticism and judgment and fear am I full of love and compassion and forgiveness and inspiration or wisdom Mm. um what's happening in my heart like if i really bring my awareness down into my chest how am i feeling 
um, it's really about discovery. Like, how do we find? It is really about like finding our authentic self. I think it's masked for most of us, most of us. And to have that inquiry, like, how am I actually feeling in my heart? I know I didn't have access to my heart for a really long time. It was closed. It just wasn't safe to be there. Like physically, actually, I did stuff in yoga to try to open it and. Mm. Um, what's happening in our gut, in our belly? That's where a lot of people feel their anxieties, their fears, their guilt, their shame. Um, and, you know, you drop further down, like below your belly button. That's the area of creativity. I mean, you may not feel it, but what is your inspiration? What inspires you? What, what is your creative bent? What, what is the thing that you bring and make in the world? And it doesn't have to be physical art mm -hmm. some people their creativity is is loving children some people their creativity is to facilitate safety in groups some people's creativity is growing plants um you know i mean there's or making food i mean those are kind of obviously creative i think but but maybe not maybe people don't think of those as art you know people might limit it just to a two-dimensional thing that goes on the wall or a three-dimensional thing that sits on a desk um, so, so I think that finding the authentic self comes from, from continued inquiry into the self. And it's really, because I personally believe we are all connected with the divine, with this greater oneness, Atman, whatever you want to call it, um, life force, it's a verb and we're all connected with it. And so as we plumb deeper into ourself, it really is a bottomless Pit. It, I don't think it's a pit. Pit's bad. But, um, it's a bottom. It's a bottomless. It's an endless. It's an infinite adventure um, of who, what is our authentic self, and what's it tied to, and what can come through that. So it's about questions. And if the answers to those questions are I don't know, then you need to spend more time sitting because the answers the answers are there. Mm. Does that answer your question? Maybe. Maybe. I'm going to have to sit with that question. Yeah. Um, yeah, it does. Thank you for that. Yeah. You want to talk about art? I guess. We'll talk about art. So. I mean, yeah. Well, I like to tell my art stories funny. You know, I, um, <laughs> so I talked about, you know, high school. I didn't go to art school. And, uh, and I, one of the things I'm a really good copyist and again, I had this attitude of like other people's art is better than mine, mm -hmm. but I like it when people say, Ooh, that's really good. I, mm -hmm. that was most of my art was done with that in mind of mm -hmm. getting your approval of you to tell me that it was good. And then that was some kind of affirmation of me as a person somehow. But so I really didn't do much art. I certainly didn't have my own voice as an artist. Um, and I took a couple art classes in college and, you know, one really instructive moment, I might've already told you the story. Um, we were doing a realistic drawing. It was actually a complicated piece of machinery. We were all drawing it from different perspectives. And, and the teacher came up to me after and he said, he looked at my drawing and he said, it's technically very good, but it's not art. And I knew right then what he was talking about. I knew it. It was, some people might think he was mean. <laughs> I was kind of like mean teachers, actually. They tell the <laughs> truth. And, um, but I knew what he meant. It was technically good, but it, there was no heart connected with it. There was no essence of me connected with it. It was really done so that he would say, that's really good. 
it wasn't me coming out on the paper. And so it was a, it was a pivotal moment for me as an artist. And I didn't do art for a really long time, a really long time. And even up to that point, most of the art that I had done, it would be for gifts for people. And I would mostly copy stuff that I liked. I would copy other people's artwork and give it as a, as a gift Mm -hmm. to someone. And I had these kids and we started to go to this kind of down and dirty preschool and they always put me on the art table with the two to four year olds. And it was so amazing, you know, and it was the kind of place where this wasn't about creating projects. They would just throw a bunch of like, like they would throw tin foil and glitter and glue and paint on the table. And then the kids could like do whatever they wanted with uh-huh. it kind of a stuff. There was always just, they would throw different materials down and they, sometimes they'd have an idea, but the kids could make whatever they want. So I was with all these kids just like totally psyched to like put glitter all over the left side of their <laughs> face and paint their hair and like make these comp- complicated things that look like poo and then and then they tell you well like this was a giraffe and he has a spaceship and then the shark ate his toes and then the dog came and you know and they had these whole like elaborate internal processes that was coming out in this external messes that the kids were making with these beautiful colors it's all about process and so much fun and it opened up it opened up this creativity artistic part of me that I, you know, I have no memory of it being open. It probably was when I was very little, but, um, my parents were pretty uptight. So, you know, I, anyway, and I got this, someone sent me a video. I don't know who, and I still show it to people all the time. It's called prodigy of color. It's about this girl, Aaliyah, Aaliyah. Oh, I should know her last name. I can't think of it. And, um, it's a video of her when she was four and she has artist parents there from Australia and, um, and she is a gifted artist. She's actually still, she's, I think she's 12 now. She's a quite, quite well-known artist. Oh, wow. Yeah. She just, anyway, it's about a 15 minute video and it changed my world. I watched this little girl like pour paint and drop stuff into the paint and dance around these huge canvases and and tell those stories like the preschool kids were doing, but, but the art was fabulous. And wow. it was art. She was making art. Like she wasn't, it wasn't a good drawing. It was art. And I, honest to God, I went out that evening and I went in the backyard with a canvas and I started throwing paint and dropping stuff into it. And I haven't done much with a paintbrush since then because I, my intention at that point was I needed to break my perfectionism and I needed to break this idea of doing something so that you would like it Mm. and so that it could be more what what it was that wanted to come through me um and it opened up this whole way to do art and to go back to my original intention of using my gifts and talents for the benefit of the most people. So this preschool is a big preschool. It's one of the biggest co-op preschools in San Francisco. It's called Playmates. And it's out in the outer, outer sunset. And there are 90 families there. It's a big preschool and a big campus and fabulous place, but it looked like crap. 
uh, I mean, the building was awful. It needed painted. It was dirty. And um, the, yeah, the physical plant was a wreck. And the one thing I am good at is making things beautiful. So, you know, as I sat with the kids in this, in this place that had so much heart and so little visual, <laughs> I thought, how can, what can I do here? And I started to see murals on the walls. And so I asked them if I could paint, can I paint this wall? And I made a proposal and they said yes. And so over the course of five years, I did make eight major art installations there, wow. including a giant. I mean, there's a mural there that's about it's about 200 square feet. Wow. And and so I started <laughs> to do art in a public way to benefit other people. And no one. And it was I liked it too because it was kind of anonymous. It wasn't like being in art class holding the thing, being like, "Do you like this?" It was like yeah. no one had to know. <laughs> So that really also opened me up as an artist and also started my love of public art. Mm. And um, a lot of the art I do is pre-approved and a lot of the art I do is not. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, you know, I like to go out in the middle of the night and spray paint stuff. Yeah. Um, not in a destructive way. Often what I do is I spray paint over graffiti and try to make it beautiful. Mm. So, so that's, that's some of my art story. I mean, and from that, it gave me the courage to start, you know, I was painting on these, I was paint pouring, which is super fun. Um, I love to paint. What is that? Paint pours. So, so from these big murals that I did, I bought, I was painting on the side of buildings. So I was using high gloss exterior paint, which is incredibly durable and you can get in any color. So, mm. and because I was painting primarily murals for kids, I love bright colors anyway. Um, I had all these quarts of bright colors, huge bright bold colors in this exterior uh, acrylic latex. And so that's what I started to, because I was overrun with the paint, um, that was what I would pour. So I literally like pour it out of the can or I pour it into smaller, I bought, a, I bought like two cases of ketchup bottles and I poured all the paint in those and I could squirt the paint. Oh wow. And, and so that's really, and then dropping, I love collage painting, like I have, I started to collect all these beads and feathers and drop stuff into the paint to see what it does to make it more three-dimensional mm. again kind of echoing these kids that are probably now in middle school that uh, <laughs> really inspired me with these different kinds of art and the thing about paint pouring that I really like is that working with the paint is like working with another entity because if you pour four colors next to each other or pour a color and then pour a color on top of it like mm -hmm. it has its own personality it does its own thing and you can tip the canvas and yeah. use gravity and that it's not i can have some idea but the paint has its own ideas so it almost feels like collaborative art mm. working with the paint and the materials I just did something like that the other day. Did you? Yeah, like pour paints on top of each other and just like let them dance together as I, you know, put them upright and like let gravity yeah. have its way. Spraying water and ah. other chemicals on it too adds a whole other oh, thing, which is really fun. Yeah, each thing you add into it adds its own thing. And then you can add heat or wind i use a blow dryer a lot blow stuff around yeah it's really oh, cool yeah, there's a whole you're working with the elements to collaborate awesome yeah <laughs> i love that oh i'll have to see what you did after you'll have to post it with your 
No. <laughs> no, it does not look good, but it was fun. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I've just been getting more into that, like, taking scratch paper and, like, painting. I got, like, a full box of paint, like, two years ago from a friend who didn't need it anymore. And I've just been, like, going off of that, and half of it's dry and gone now, but... Um, well, still... so even dry paint is interesting. Mm. So you can stick chunks of paint into the paint. Oh, interesting. Like to get three. I mean, it's fine. I, I kind of try to work with whatever's there just to see. Yeah. Like the paint will get a skin on it and I'll like pull the skin off and slap it in there. And it oh, adds cool. like interesting crinkly elements to it. And um, slowly I've been working. You know, I, I did a, some abstract. I haven't done any abstract stuff in a while, but... Then I started to use the paint pouring more for directive art. And, you know, I, I, people asked me, would you paint this painting for me? Sure. I started to do what I had done historically to paint pictures for somebody for like their birthday or an anniversary or wedding gift or whatever. And, and so, so I started to actually make more of the art that's probably, cause I'm more of a semi-realist than a, than an abstract person. And, um, and so so I started to gather up some paintings, and then you know, of course, in San Francisco, we have we have um, the Open Studios every fall, which is fabulous. And I had a friend. Do you know about Open Studios? No. Oh my God, he doesn't know about Open Studios. So San Francisco, in September, October, November, has Open Studios every year, and each week or couple of weeks, different sections of the city are opened for open studios. And you can either have an, an open studio of your own, like you could have an open studio here, um, or you can be part of a collective open studio and there are people that gather together. And so sometimes there are people's homes and businesses or in actual art studios that people will open. There's a whole, um, so the so the open studios, who's it done? Artspan is who runs it. Oh, Artspan. Okay. Artspan runs it and they'll help you find other people to collaborate with. They have a huge catalog that comes out. They do a lot of promotion for it. And there's people that do open studios every weekend as patrons um, and will go to every open studio all over the city or, you know, out here in the Outer Sunset in the Richmond. Um, so we get one or two weekends out here. Oh, wow. And so, and it's cheap to get in. It's like a hundred bucks. I mean, it depends what you do. And of course, if you want to buy an ad and blah, 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 it can be more. Um, yeah, so not, so it was a little bit after that. You know, a couple of years had gone by, and uh, I was actually working with wire sculpture at that point. Um, cool. Through this Buddhist meditation called the Jewel Tree, which is a really inspiring meditation. I was teaching art to kids in first and second grade, so I was always looking for art projects for the kids. That started a whole other thing for me, because as I would look for projects for them, I was really immersed in looking at what people were doing, and so I started to do some of the stuff myself. So anyway, I started to do these... Um, these jewel trees and, and one of my friends said, oh, I'm doing open studios. And like yourself, I was like, what is that? <laughs> and <laughs> so she told me and she said, I said, oh, could I do it with you? And she said, well, I'm a painter, so I don't really want any paintings. Do you have anything three dimensional? And I was like, yeah, I have these sculptures. So, and so I whipped up a couple more and, um, and I brought them over to her house and made little cards and set them up and I sold four of them. Wow. I know. Very inspiring. So I was like, oh, dude, that was good. So <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. So 
so it it's and then I did open studios again the next year and then and had another big I mean the next year I sold like 15 pieces of art and um and so that inspired me to start to do shows and then I started to to use that I'm a deadline person I like to have a and I I like to have a goal mm-hmm. and if I have a deadline it will make me do it will make me do it because I don't just do art because I need to do art um because otherwise it fills up my garage so I got to have a reason to do it and so as I started to sell um so as I started to sell art, I started to do more shows, I started to create more stuff, and then over time, you know, I have a pretty, I, I mean, for me, I have a pretty big inventory. I mean, I have about, I think I have about 30 paintings out now showing in different places. Yeah. And, and I just had someone last week that wants me to show in a, in a framing store that they have over in Oakland, ah. and I had two, two different people ask me to, it, I had kind of an art day last week. Two different people asked me to commission pieces for them. Cool. Yeah. So... Nice. Um, so my art's pretty exciting. I'm still not, I mean, my goal of where I want to get to is I want to find a way to paint poor, realistic portraits of people. Yeah. To blend the paint pouring and the looseness of that with a realistic portrait of a person. That I have not, I haven't got there yet, but that is my life goal. Wow. Yeah. Because I love to paint people. I've been experimenting. I just did, you know, we're part of an art salon that's every two months, the San Francisco Art Salon. And so, which was another dream of mine to start that. We've had three of them. They've been super successful. And and we're going to have another one in April out in the Richmond District. And, um... And so we need to get an Eventbrite page or something so people can look it up. Yeah. It will be seen. You can search San Francisco Art Salon and you'll find it. And, what? Um, yeah, it oh, is on Eventbrite. Know that. Yeah, it's yeah. on Eventbrite. That, wow. that's how, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I need to make up a new one for the April. Whatever the second Sunday in April is, that's the date it will be. Do you be think there. that will move to a different spot eventually? I don't know. I mean, Because I thought that was like a closed group. I didn't even know that was Oh, no, open. it's on Eventbrite. We've actually had what? some random people come. Yeah, it's interesting. Oh, how cool. I okay. think, yeah. So, um, you know, through that salon, too, I mean, I'm, I'm a group-centered person, so through the salon and me encouraging other people to kind of push their growing edge, I, so I just did some photography, um, I'm working, I'm going to do more photography, working around with the human body, I really like working with nudes, I, I, and so um, I'm interested in erotic art, I'm a little bit interested in the kink community, and, uh-huh. and, and how that can work into art, um, so as I explore myself looking, looking for ways to express that, um, and it gets back to that similar, so I was like, you know, I'm Mrs. McKenna. I'm the art teacher at St. Gabriel's School for 